This is Place Matters, a podcast at the intersection of race, place, and poverty, where we explore the belief that the path towards ending inequity and promoting prosperity is through the work of holistic neighborhood development. Welcome to a special series focusing on the role of churches in their neighborhoods. During this series on Place Matters, we will talk to leaders, scholars, practitioners, and mobilizers who speak to the joys and challenges of inviting churches into partnership with their neighborhood. I'm Sean Duncan, the Director of Training and Consulting for FCS, and my colleague, David Park, one of our lead consultants, will be your host for this series of Place Matters. FCS is a grateful recipient of Lilly Endowment Inc.'s Thriving Congregations grant. Through our partnership with Lilly, we have been launching two-year place-based cohorts that we call City Shapers. City Shapers is inviting churches to build and participate in multi-sector collaborative tables that are working to bring about flourishing in the disadvantaged neighborhoods of their city. We are doing this because FCS believes that part of being a thriving church is being connected to your neighborhood and participating in efforts that aid its well-being. As a part of this grant, we've also been doing some research in partnership with the Barna Group, a Christian research organization that provides data and insights on trends affecting faith, culture, and ministry today. Surveying over 400 church leaders, we have been looking at the connections between the traditional metrics of church health and vitality with community engagement, poverty relief, and justice. So what do you think the surveys have revealed? How much impact does neighborhood engagement have on our perception of the health of our churches? Listen in as our team members David Park, Stacy Brungart, and Becca Klein talk to Daniel Copeland and Dave Cresta about this research. Daniel is the Associate Vice President of Research at Barna, and Dave is the author of Jesus on Main Street, who consults with churches on how they can participate in building thriving communities. Thank you so much for uh, joining us today on a conversation about church and neighborhood. And uh, I'm so excited to have uh, my colleagues and I welcome um, uh, Daniel Copeland and Dave Crest to the conversation. Um, let's do a quick uh, series of uh, introductions. Dave Cresta, could you introduce yourself and what you do? Yeah, I'm uh, happy to be here. So um, most recently, I wrote a book called Jesus on Main Street, which is about community economic development. And um, what I do is research, teach, consult in the areas of churches and community engagement. And um, I'm a big believer in this stuff. So thanks for inviting me. Thanks, Dave. How about you, Daniel? Well, hi, everybody. My name is Daniel Copeland, and I serve as the senior lead researcher for Barna Group. Uh, I've been with Barna Group for five and a half years, and Barna is a Christian-based religious organiza uh, research organization that studies the intersection of faith and culture. Uh, I'm based out of Atlanta, Georgia, and have the incredible privilege of leading our research team, which mostly looks like meeting with incredible thought leaders, incredible organizations, and figuring out how research can be a solution to problems the church is facing today. Um, I design most of our studies. That's actually where a lot of my time is spent. Uh, but I'm honestly just fascinated by the work of people like who's on this call uh, and just so enamored to get to be in the conversation. Yeah, me too. Um, Stacy, and then Becca. Hi, 
<laughs> I'm Stacy Brungard. I'm one of the lead trainers and consultants with the Lepton Center at FCS. And I love all the things, uh, community engagement, uh, particularly with a targeted neighborhood focus, because um, cultures and personalities shift drastically from one neighborhood to the next. I'm glad to be here. Becca. Yeah, um, I'm Becca Klein. Um, I also work at the Lupton Center as uh, the Knowledge and Research Coordinator. Um, I recently graduated from Emory um, University from their Candler School of Theology with my Master's of Divinity. So I've had the privilege of doing a little bit of research with David and Dave specifically about um, church and neighborhood and the connection. It's kind of the passion of my life that I've discovered and has been really um, just exciting to, to dive into this conversation more today. So I had to enlist the help of my uh, two colleagues because I feel like the, the least qualified person to have this kind like, I feel so uh, unintelligent when it comes to like parsing out the data and disaggregating and looking at this uh, P value and, and then K and all these letters come in. So, but I'm really excited because I feel like you guys make everybody smarter when you start unpacking some of this stuff. So as we're talking about church and neighborhood, uh, I think... You guys may know, even anecdotally, without even going back to the numbers, you guys can sort of know what's going on in sort of this world and this this divide. But it seems like to me, like we, we as FCS has been doing some research here, we, we can kind of name some trends that are going on with church and neighborhood. Uh, Dave, can you tell us a little bit about what our initial survey results say? Yeah, so... Um... We put this survey together, I guess it's already a couple years ago, right? Um, when we started working on this. And correct me if I'm wrong, David, Becca, you guys were involved back then. But I mean, one of the, the primary research questions was, you know, what's the relationship, if anything, between the health of churches, the vitality of churches and their engagement in their neighborhoods? So what we're, you know, hoping to see and tease out is, you know, are churches that are more engaged with their communities healthier? Um, and there, we could talk a lot about why that may or may not be. Um, so we put together a pretty detailed survey. Daniel, I think you must have been involved in the administration of that Um I'm not a professional survey designer. I mean, my my uh, PhD level research was more on the quantitative side. So um, I apologize ahead of time if the survey was not, uh, you know, world class. But I think we got at some really interesting things. Um, so we, we um, developed the survey to get at a number of different metrics. And so we wanted to really get deeper than just like kind of the surface level, you know, is your church engaged in the community? Yes, no. Um, you know, how much money do you give to local missions? You know, and then that kind of leaves it at that. So we got at things like, you know, what level of partnership do you have with your community? Um, what kind of relational connection do you have with your community? What kind of demographic and geographic overlap do you have your community? Um, so in other words, are you guys all commuting into your neighborhood or do you live in your neighborhood? Um, and then more traditional questions like what kind of engagement do you have with your church, with your community? What are what is your um, role in poverty and justice engagement? Um, so that was kind of what we were trying to get at. Um, 
just kind of to cut to the chase, uh, we didn't see this hoped for connection between um, community engagement, relational connection, neighborhood engagement, and church vitality. Um, so we're we're still looking for it. Um, I'm thinking of a U2 song here, you know, right? I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Um, so I think we've we've started to uncover some things here. Um, so yeah, I'll, 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 I guess that's just kind of the, the the high level view. I mean, you might have more questions, David, as we move along, or Daniel as we move along. But uh, yeah, that connection I think is tenuous at this point when you look at a whole lot of churches. Um, we can always find examples of churches that are really engaged with their communities. Um, but overall, I think that's still a, a direction that, you know, we'd like to all see the churches move in in more of a deliberate manner. So, Daniel, I don't know if you uh, if you looked over the results, which I don't it's OK if you haven't. But I'm just wondering if, if, if those results surprise you, given that you probably have run uh, and looked at a lot of data about churches and neighborhoods. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, I didn't have the time or make the time to review the results of that survey, but I have done a lot of surveys. And um, hearing Dave talk about that a little bit, one of the things that I, you know, he, he, he mentioned, you know, we didn't do the standard question of are you engaged in the community, yes or no. You, dig, you dug deeper. And one of the things that I would say is after my years of conducting research amongst pastors, interviews with pastors is, there's very few churches out there who don't think they're involved in the community and don't think that they're influencing the community. And so I, even hearing what you're talking about, it recognizes, uh, for me, it just brings up this need for a deeper vocabulary that we clearly haven't articulated it yet around what, what does this look like? Um, oftentimes when I'm training researchers or training people of how to think about research, um, I talk about how it's kind of like um, there's this thing you know that exists in the world. You know this thing exists. It's got a gravitational orbit. Things are kind of like clustered around it, but we haven't named quite what it is yet. We just know that it's there. We know that community engagement, the relationship between community engagement, uh, community embeddedness, neighborhood, neighbor embeddedness matters. We know it influences the well-being of the church, and we know that the well-being of the church influences the well-being of the neighborhood. But what I've seen is that uh, over my time of doing this is that it's not a language, it's not a vocabulary we've got the best description for yet. We haven't really been able to articulate exactly what it is or how it happens. Um, one of the things that, you know, just uh, stir the pot a little bit is that you start to have to think, breaking down, well, what do we mean by church? Uh, do we mean just the perspectives of the senior pastor? Do we mean uh, the congregants and how they are influencing their neighborhood? If, if uh, if in my neighborhood I make dinner for my neighbor in need, is that an expression of my church and my church's embeddedness in that neighborhood? Or is that just me being a nice Samaritan? Um, and so I think that there's just work that has to be done in naming most churches. So it's kind of my original point after my years of research. Most churches think they're embedded in their community, but we haven't figured out exactly what that what, what separates great embeddedness versus nominal embeddedness. It's kind of the same way that uh, 40% of Americans call themselves Christian, but don't go to church. Um, there, there's a nominalness that happens within American Christianity. And, and I think there's a similarity between that and how pretty much all churches will say they're embedded in their community, that they're serving the community, but there's something not quite clicking. There's some words and terms of some something that we have to really lean into and spend some time discerning 
what does it really look like and what's the difference that categorical difference between the churches the leaders the congregants who are doing it really well and those who have room to grow so this took only nine minutes to get super existential what do we mean by church what do we mean by thriving what do we mean by neighborhood I mean, it starts to get like, yeah, you're right. None of, I don't know what anything really means anymore. But yeah, I yeah. do. Oh, go ahead, Dave. No, I was just going to say um, to, to, to kind of dig into what Daniel's saying there. Um, so one of the things that we looked at in the survey was, yeah, what do we mean by neighborhood and community engagement? So we actually came up with four categories or uh, typology. So um, let me just list them out because I think it gives us a little bit um, – deeper look into this. So there are um, ways to engage with your community. So it could be, you know, we engage with the neighborhood that's immediately around our church. So it's very focused on that, you know, one mile, two mile radius around where your church building is physically located. So I'll call that immediate neighborhood focus. Um, Other churches may have a multiple neighborhood focus. So maybe they've chosen, um, you know, maybe that's a, it's a downtown neighborhood that they're they're partnering with, um, and maybe another neighborhood across town. But they've got multiple neighborhoods that they consider their parish. The other model is um, what I'd call a dispersed approach. So, in other words, we enable our members or our attendees to minister in the neighborhoods that they happen to live in. So, this could be you know all over the metropolitan area, depending on where people are driving in from. Um, so there could be multiple neighborhoods impacted. And then a fourth category is we don't really focus on a specific geography. We're more focused on, you know, the, the, the metro area or in some cases there's churches maybe that focus on a particular um, issue or demographic like immigrants or LGBTQ. Um, so that, that's really kind of a non-neighborhood definition of community. Um, so interestingly, if we're talking about statistics and stuff here, I, I have to mention some numbers. So I actually looked at the survey results that we did um, through the Barna survey, and about 20% of the churches had this immediate neighborhood approach. So focusing only on that neighborhood right around where they're at. Um, about 33% had this dispersed approach and a similar amount about 33 percent had a non-neighborhood approach and that left about 10 percent with a multiple neighborhood approach so that right there tells you that you know just about two-thirds of the churches that were in the survey did not focus on the neighborhood immediately around their physical building Um, that's probably not super surprising to anybody here, but I think it's very um, uh, illustrative of kind of the state of the American church. Is that consistent with some of the things you found, Daniel? Or Yeah, I, I, it's absolutely consistent. And I th- we, we did a project um, that was focused on urban centers over the last few years that was called Inside the Urban Church, where we found that the more centered to a city we got, um, the more likely people were to say we focus on the immediate community. Um, 
how we defined it might not be the same exact definition as what you guys' research was looking into. Um, but generally, that all sounds right to me. And I think the rise, I, I'd be curious to know if there was a, um, and I'm hypothesizing here, if there's been a rise in this kind of non-geographic focus um, that we see more and more and more, especially in the media age, that churches are taking more of these issues approach to how they minister. You know, this is a church that is focused on racial reconciliation. This is a church that's focused on poverty, homelessness. And so we've almost created these categorical churches that are less in place, uh, like physically in place and more topical. Um, and sometimes that makes sense when the area that a church is located in has a specific need that they can lean into and you can see the overlap of those things. But I actually think there's quite something interesting where we have now you know, thematically or categorically churches that are focusing on issues that might not actually be present in their immediate neighborhood. And so I'm really interested in that non-geographical focus um, and, and kind of hypothesizing that probably in modernity and contemporary years that that's probably risen um, because the internet media has really, uh, in, I'm, my background's in sociology. One of my favorite sociological ideas is the uh, called proximity effect. Proximity effect basically just says that how close we are to an issue defines our perception of an issue. Uh, it's not that when I'm far from an issue, I don't, I care less about it or I um, am unknowledgeable about it. I might be, but it actually just says that the further I am from an issue, it changes the perspective I have of an issue. It's the way that people who live in rural America might have an opinion of cities that's not, might not be accurate of cities, but they still have an a opinion because of their proximity. And so one of the interesting things that we see a lot in our research is that over the, as media increases, as internet connectivity increases, people feel closer to issues that are not actually present in their immediate community. Um, we feel close to things like uh, homelessness, even if homelessness might, might not be as bad in my area as it is in an in inner city. And so to hearing your four groups, and I wrote, I was scribbling them down on some notes, I'm super interested in that non-geographical focus to hear that that's one third of churches kind of feels right. But I'm, I'm curious what the effect of that is, is how does that affect that community? Do they see their neighbor? Uh, are they actually, you know, is the uh, propensity to embeddedness higher or lower in those churches? And you might have answers to that, but th that was the number that really stuck out to me, that non-geographical focus. Yeah, we need to do more study of that. Um, so I, I did uh, try to tease out some of the data from the survey and um, interestingly, didn't really see um, any statistically significant differences between those four groups and their poverty and justice engagement. Mm. So all of these churches, to your point, Daniel, originally still felt like they were engaged in poverty and justice work or in their communities. But I think they have probably wildly different definitions of that and different um, areas or scopes of that as well. Um, so yeah, I feel like we're just kind of like scratching the surface with even this pretty in-depth survey to try to get, you know, some, some, some uh, uh, higher levels of understanding behind this. The one thing that I was thinking, Daniel, as you were speaking um, with the non-geographic approach, let me just raise here a caution or, or, a, um, or a concern. When we start 
the church, when the church starts addressing things as issues, as opposed to looking at people and looking at relations and relationships and loving their neighbor, I question how, how good of a job are we able to do on those issues if we are in fact separated from the people that are impacted by those issues. You know, if you look at poverty or if you look at um, various forms of oppression or marginalization, it's one thing to advocate for changes in laws or to, you know, protest march. But then it's another thing to know people who are being being um, affected negatively by those issues and asking them, hey, how can we help you and bringing them into part of the solution? I think that could be missing when you have this non-geographic approach. One of the things that we have seen in our research that is something I, I don't think I've ever reached a conclusion on, but just a general trend, is that church leaders definitely um, tend to take this posture towards community and towards service as serving rather than receiving. Um, and, and and that's not to you know mix what the difference is between uh, serving community or are we receiving community? Or are we a part of community or are we in place? Um, and I'll, so many church leaders think in terms of what we have to offer, the service we can provide, um, rather than receiving a community and saying, hey, we're located in a certain place at a certain time in history. Who's here and what's going on? Um, a lot more, a lot of churches today have this kind of service mentality, which is great in nature, um, I think, um, to my current opinion. It's good to have that service mentality. It's good to see what can we offer. Uh, but there's also such a thing as offering things that no one's ready to buy and, and uh, that people may not be in need of. And so the balance between service and reception of community, I think, is actually a really important balance and something worth considering wherever we are in our location. That's interesting that you say that. Uh, I think one of the things that uh, we also measured in our survey was uh, that churches lacked uh, partnerships. So mm. that they maybe, and one one way to think of it is maybe uh, maybe they're trying to do too much, you know, by themselves without uh, necessarily forming partnerships. Was that accurate, Dave? Did I did I recall that observation uh, correctly? Um, well, let me just pull it up here. I think. Um... The partnership metric showed, where is it here? Um, kind of anywhere from zero to three out of five. So yeah, it was kind of on the lower end of the, of the scale. Um, what we did see though, was that churches that were more engaged in poverty and justice work did have high levels of partnership as well. So that's a good, that's good news. So it shows that those things go hand in hand. They're correlated to use the statistical speech. Um, so that, that was good news. Um, so I think, um, you know, from my experience, especially with larger churches, they're not afraid to develop quote unquote partnerships. But I think even the definition of what does it mean to be a partner is, is fraught with, you know, nuance. Um, does it mean that you're sending volunteers once a quarter so that, you know, it, excuse me, you can edit this out, David, if it's too jaded, you know, so that, you know, you can include on your um, annual report, oh, we partner with this, this group and we partner with this group. 
well, what, what does that mean? Yeah, I mean, we send volunteers, you know, once a quarter if we're lucky, and it's, it's maybe a handful of volunteers out of a church of a thousand. Is that a partnership? Hey guys, just jumping in real quick to say that we would love to take your church and local partners through our two-year cohort process called City Shapers. The cohorts that are launching this year will be funded partially by Lilly Endowment, so it's a great time to get involved. We have had three communities go through this process so far and would love to bring it to you next. So contact us today to learn more at fcsministries.org. Um, I think something that gets at too, like as y'all are talking about, you know, this difference between like how people are viewing partnerships, the different, these different types of churches, the way that they envision um, how they show up in the world. I think there's like a thread that I would want to pull about the, the two different ways that you could define church, like as its impact in like proximity and place is the actual physical location of the church. And then the actual location that maybe they are focused on. Right. So like regardless of whether or not you're a church that's in neighborhood a, but you do a lot of um, your service or your um, in-place work in neighborhood B, you're still showing up in neighborhood A, like it or not, whether or not your interests are over here, your building has a footprint and there's a structural implication um, as to, you know, that you're you're a part of this neighborhood, even if you maybe are looking at partnerships outside of it. I'm curious if, if anyone has thoughts about um, maybe how you've seen that show up in either your personal experience or your research, just, I don't know, that tension between we might be focused over here as a group of people, but like it or not, this is where we're rooted. Um, yeah. I'll let Daniel go first. <laughs> yeah, um, sure. Cause I'm, I'm having flashbacks right now to my dissertation, but uh, <laughs> go ahead, Daniel. So um, uh, at Barnard group, I have the really neat opportunity of getting to uh, partner uh, serve a lot of different organizations doing a lot of different things. Um, we have a long-standing relationship with an organization called Aspen Group, who is a church architect and design company out of uh, the south side of Chicago. And we've gotten to do this really neat work with them over the years where we have toured churches. And we ultimately, uh, their punchline is uh, church buildings have values. Uh, the physical body of the church, the physical structure of the church has a value. Is it lined up with the value your church would say it holds as people? So our church says we're really open and inclusive, but our church building has no ramps. Uh, it has no way for a disabled person, a person living with disabilities to enter it. Uh, our church says it's really welcoming and warm, but it's all uh, really cold lighting and it doesn't actually feel like a warm hug when I enter it. And one of the things that was really interesting as we've done the work with them is that we've gotten to walk through church buildings with church leaders and then with people who are church goers and then people who are uh, not a part of that church. And one of the things that's really interesting is that we've learned is that church leaders do a really phenomenal job at communicating the stories, the history, the values of their physical building. And that the majority of the time that doesn't get passed on to the congregation, that doesn't get passed on to the community. And so the community people or the congregants, the lay people end up looking at it as a, just a building that happens to be in a certain place. Uh, 
and that most churches don't have this vocabulary, this shared narrative of who our church is in its place. Sometimes the church leader has that and they've seen it passed down like almost generationally from pastor to pastor or leader to leader, board to board, elder to elder, but that, that often doesn't get transfused into the uh, narrative of the congregation. A lot of times the narrative of the congregation is uh, lack stickiness. The, the narrative of the congregation is different from one small group to the next. And that our churches just often don't have these cohesive narratives of who are we in this place. Oftentimes a church leader has it, but it's not often the thing that they're sharing with the congregation or instilling onto them. And I think that's such a uh, miss. Why wouldn't we be the same way that I love my grandmother's house? It's got a physical place in my mind. It's a place that I can go visit. It's sights, it smells, it's warm to me. It has a narrative. Can't my church have that same thing? Uh, and for many people it does, but can't we also craft that as a people that includes our service, that includes our embeddedness? I find in our work oftentimes that's something that church leaders don't know how to pass on, don't know how to instill in others. Well, why do you think that is? is? Are there some reasons why churches don't share that? You would think that like it's, they probably put it on their billboard or put it on some signage in this in, inside and think like, oh, we did, we, we told everybody, but... Maybe they're not. It's not enough. What, what are some other ways they can get that DNA of, of their vision out there? I have a few thoughts to that, but I'm curious if Dave has any reactions before I start monologuing again. So, yeah, I actually wanted to put a placeholder in this, but we can talk about it now. Um, so the thing I'm thinking of is um, our society, our environment has changed. So when a lot of those churches started, they were a church of that place. You know, they were in that corner of the urban center for a reason. You know, the first Baptists, the first Episcopalian, the first Presbyterian church. The place was important to them. They chose that place. Um, so my, my question is, you know, society, sociologically, there's been a lot of changes. Um, it's likely that if that church is, even still exists, Many of those members no longer live around there. They used to maybe walk to that church 100 years ago, but now they drive in 20, 30, 40 minutes from a suburb. So my question is, is it okay that the church has changed in nature largely due to societal issues, societal trends? Or is there a role for the church to be countercultural? You know, we love to throw that around. We, like, we love to say the church needs to be countercultural, except when it comes to things like gentrification, except when it comes to things like suburbanization, except when it comes to whatever the issue is. You know, um, there, was a, there was an author who coined this thing. This was like 50 years ago. He talked about the suburban captivity of the churches. And this was 50 years ago. So I feel like we've kind of just accepted this suburbanization, these urban trends that have removed place as an important aspect in our society. When I, I question, you know, should, should we have given up so easily on our placeness? And should we be fighting counterculturally to get back to that? I think the answer is yes, we should, but that's just me. It's such a great question. It's so, uh, 
I feel like it is such a, it's an identity question of who do people want to, uh, who does the church want to be, who are Christians today? Um, in, in this work, we usually throw around the word that, uh, the word embodied that uh, or incarnate, that Christians are called to be embodied and incarnate people, that uh, we have a physical book, a physical meeting place. And yet sometimes it seems to be some of the least important things to us. Uh, the actual physical location at which we meet, the actual uh, book we gather around, the relationships. Um, and my punchline to a lot of this would be uh, a weird quote, or uh, I would quote uh, the you know the great theologian Malcolm Gladwell, who would say we've become far better armchair psychologists than armchair sociologists, uh, which is really to name the fact that we are just so captured by our own individualism, um, we are so mm -hmm. captured by thinking of the psychological psyche of who am I, not who are we. Um, mm -hmm. Churches just lack that uh, that armchair sociology of who am I in a neighborhood. They think, or who are we in a neighborhood? Maybe they think about who am I in a neighborhood. And so I think that there's just this missing. I, I keep coming back to like missing vocabulary, missing language around. Maybe we don't need to think about me. Maybe we need to think about we. And we have an identity and we need to be able to express ourselves beyond just one church leader knowing the story, one church leader being able to craft the narrative. Maybe we need a shared narrative that goes beyond the individual, that is greater than the individual and not get wrapped up in you know, the identity politics that is individualism, mm -hmm. um, which is really messy. But isn't that a wonderful work for the church to be a part of? to say, hey, we matter uh, as a we, as a place, as a physicalness. Um, I think that's a wonderful calling for churches to jump into and be willing to have that conversation because I, of all the churches I've gotten to tour in my work, the churches that seem the most vibrant um, are the churches who have a story, who have a narrative that goes beyond one person, who goes beyond one uh, idea, one small group, it goes, it's a, it's a narrative that is a part of something bigger than themselves. I find people are less and less willing to be part of small parts of big things. Uh, that And that's what narrative shaping really means for a community. Be a small part of a big thing. Say, this isn't just about me. Be that armchair sociologist over the armchair psychologist. Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, Becca, I'd like to get I, th I think this ties to your question, too, of, you know, like churches are in spaces or places, whether or not they recognize that, whether or not they've lost that narrative to to use Daniel's language. Um, so, yeah, I, I actually did look at that as part of my um, dissertation research at Portland State University. So I was looking at kind of large level um, urban urban studies um, issues. And so looked at, you know, 2000 churches across the country and asked the simple question, are these churches having an impact on the neighborhood that they're located in? And, you know, as we've been discussing here, I think a lot of churches have lost that narrative for a variety of reasons. Um, but nonetheless, they still may have an impact on their neighborhood where they happen to be located, where, you know, we've fought so um, uh, um, so much to, to continue to have the right to meet, right? I mean, that came up time and time again in COVID. We want to have the right to meet. 
well, do we care about where we meet and do we care about the place that we meet? Um, so I'll just share one quick finding that indicates that a church can have an impact on its neighborhood, whether or not it realizes it or not. And that is the impact on gentrification. Um, so I think most people probably already know what gentrification is. That, that word's been used a lot, but um, it essentially uh, very simplistically refers to um, uh, central city neighborhoods becoming more affluent, um, losing their um, diversity, becoming more white, and displacement of existing residents. Um, so I found that churches that were located in these inner city neighborhoods that were white churches actually did have an impact on gentrification um, and actually showed that they were um, kind of causally impl implicated in that gentrification process just by virtue of occupying space in that inner city neighborhood and imagine people walking by and seeing a bunch of white people in this space attending church that's going to have an impact on that neighborhood you know maybe it's going to make somebody who's considering moving into that neighborhood you know a quote unquote gentrifier might make them feel more comfortable moving into that neighborhood because they see this church that's comfortable to them already in that neighborhood I'd, I'd venture to say that most of those pastors and church planters who planted those churches in those inner city neighborhoods did not have an intention of being implicated and speeding up this process of gentrification, but it, it can happen. I think that goes along really well, Stacy, with something that you kind of said to the side of like asking, what does it look like to ask the neighborhood to write the story of the church? Like what does, if you are going to be a church that is, existing in a brick and mortar location whatsoever, what does it look like to interact with your neighbors in a way that you're not just coming in and saying, this is who we are and this is our story, but saying, hey, like we're a part of your home now and, and we're, we're neighbors in every sense of the word. And so what does it look like to have shared language around like, what would it be like for them to see what this what this church could be in a neighborhood rather than just the neighborhood or the church deciding what they want to be in the neighborhood? Um, I didn't know if you have any other thoughts on that, Stacey, not to put you on the spot, but I thought that was a really interesting comment. Thanks, Becca. Yeah, I just, um, I feel like for me, what I notice with a lot of our um, friends, partners, clients is that there's this kind of introverted perspective of the church and what go, the goings on. Um, and then you want to extrovert. So how do we connect to the neighborhood? How do we draw people to Christ? How do we get people to come to church or mass or whatever it is instead of, you know, uh, going at it by knowing people first, know the neighborhood, know these people first, and then build your church around that um, because I think that's historically the way it goes. And so somehow we have uh, shot away from extroversion in just getting to know people. And I mean, I, I can remember being, being bused to a, a church um, and it, I, I wanted to be in church. I wanted to be a part of a faith community. You know, I wanted that sense of belongership and family and all of the things. And, um, 
but I didn't know any of the people there because they bust me from my neighborhood into this neighborhood. And I don't go to school with these kids. So I don't know them. I mean, you know, I don't know their families. I don't know their parents. They're not doing the same things that we enjoy in our neighborhood. Um, so trying different, you know, when you talk about how many churches, I think today, uh, Dr. Duncan was talking about 13 churches just in historic South Atlanta neighborhood, which is a small footprint. And, you know, how awful if, if, if none of them represented the neighborhood, right? So I just, you know, I wonder always about kind of how to get data, collect data or what data there is on things like that. I think too, like just the, something that keeps like ringing in my head is like probably a tired phrase at this point, but like, as everyone's talking, it's just that idea of like intention versus impact. Like Dave said, like some of these church planters that have gone into areas that maybe they're in a footprint that their congregation, the people they're drawing doesn't necessarily look the same as the neighborhood they've decided to plant in. Like they might have every great intention of um, wanting it to be this cohesive, um, multicultural, like dynamic church, but you know, that might not be the impact that's created. And it's like asking yourself these hard questions of like, what is this actually, I know that I have this vision in my head of what I want this to look like, right? But how have I actually seen this play out? How is it playing out? When can I admit maybe what we did here was not the best thing for our congregation, for the people that we, you know, have moved into this neighborhood alongside? Like, you know, kind of admitting like, oh, maybe we got it wrong. And is there a way that we can pivot? Like once we've realize that there might've been a little damage that happened. Um, I think a lot of times we want to just kind of speed on past and, and just be like, okay, like we're going to, this is going to look good. We're going to fix it. It's going to be okay. But we don't always stop and think about, you know, is our intention and our impact, is it lining up? And I think we have to be okay and humble enough to admit, yeah, like maybe we got it wrong because if we don't stop and admit those things, we're just going to keep pressing forward and creating messes we have to clean up in a few years. You know, I think, yeah, there's just, I think that the idea has just been kind of rebounding through all the different things that we're saying. I don't know if there are any statistics for, is the church patient and humble and slow down enough to reflect on these types of matters? Daniel, Dave, I turn it over to you. I don't know if I have a statistic to answer that question. Um, I, but I, I would say you've hit on one of my major theses of, um, after my work with churches and this kind of research for several years is coming to recognize that there's not a lot of patience in the church. Um, a lot of people have a hard time thinking about um, more than, you know, a few weeks ahead, let alone a few years or a few decades. And these things don't happen uh, overnight. They barely happen in a generation. Um, if, if I was, I'm going to outkick my coverage very fast by making an analogy to a lot of this. And um, if you were to think about neighborhoods and you're thinking about businesses or, you know, who's a part of a neighborhood, who's a part of a community. And if you were to, uh, one of my only magic tricks is just trying to compare to other worlds for the church and say, Hey, let's, let's think for a second. If we were a business, what would this look like? Is the church in most communities more like Walmart or is it more like a mom and pop shop, more like a locally owned, locally sustained, you know, uh, farm to table sort of place. And I would say, because of the resourcing, because of the curriculum, because of all the things available to church leaders today at the national level, we operate a lot more like Walmarts. There's a model 
there's a curriculum. I can go download my sermon slides from some other organization today. We don't actually have to go rep reflect our communities. Um, it, and it's sad when maybe people are more in need of that mom and pop shop that knows your name and knows who you are, and knows what you're struggling with, and can know your order when you walk through the door and has a narrative to associate with it. Um, and, and I think that that long, patient, humble journey would look more like, hey, how do we maybe deny even some of our best resources? Um, maybe in some of, maybe the simple just meeting of people is good enough for what most people need and that community impact, that community reflection, uh, rather than following the model as the model's being done. Um, it's actually a really worthwhile calling for church leaders. Um, I'd be in, really inclined to come to a church that looks less like all other churches, who's doing things a little differently, uh, that looks a little bit more local and a little more farm to table than somebody who's following the same stuff that everybody else is doing and having the same results. And if said church exists, I hope it exists long enough for you to, to find them. That's the, that's the challenge, right? <laughs> yeah. But uh, Dave, and I think this goes back to the point you were making, Dave. That um, almost like they should. You believe that churches should be rooted in place, and Daniel's like, I wish they were. <laughs> so a woman, I, I love. The, oh, go ahead. I love the analogy or the kind of jumping into like, what if the church was a, you know, was a, is the church a Walmart or mom and pop? I'd like. I want to think more about that. I like mm -hmm. that. Um, I where my mind went was like. What kind of organization is the church? Is mm. it, you know, you often speak pastor, you hear pastors speaking against um, kind of consumerism of the church. But I think that's that's really embedded. And it's it's funny that you actually use that consumer analogy, even like our church is actually purveyors of religious goods and services, whether it's through a Walmart model or a mom and pop model. And I'd say, you know, maybe that gets to, to one of the questions I really grapple with is, you know, what is the mission of the church in place? Is it to provide, you know, better religious goods and services? Is it to provide, um, you know, if you, I, I started asking people in my church, like, why did you choose to attend this church? And it will go, I'm not going to name it, um, very few people said, I'm attending here because of where the church is located. You know, there, there are a few people that are live nearby and that's why they're attending there. That's why I'm attending there. But more often than not, it's, you know, well, we like the sermons. We like the music. Um, scratch below the surface a little bit. I mean, that's a really consumer mentality, right? It, it provides what I'm looking for. Um, so to me, David, you asked the question, you know, why have churches lost this narrative? I think that's a big part of it is this um, captivity to consumerism that's pervaded even our Christianity, um, as opposed to, you know, what does God have a vision for this church in this place? Um, I'd say that's where the thriving comes in. God envisions this church as being an agent of thriving in its place, not a purveyor of religious goods and services. I, I, um, I, I ratted on psychology a few minutes ago, so I'm going to bring some of it back in for a positive angle for a second because I do love psychology. Um, over the last few years, I've been really fascinated and been learning more on just my own time around um, um, uh, compassionate psychology and how compassion takes root in the brain. And uh, researchers have found that in your brain, uh, 
there are three key ways that we regulate emotions. Uh, and you can remember them in uh, three S's. There's survival, there's success, and there's soothing. So when we experience something, our brain's going to regulate it through one of those three first. We're either going to have survive, that's like your fight, flight, freeze. You're going to try to succeed. Uh, I have a goal in mind. Maybe it's hunger. Maybe it's uh, you know uh, uh, stability, safety. But the last one is soothing. Uh, soothing is our relationships, our bonding, our belonging. And if you thought about just those three things, I think you could actually create priorities around how institutions, and I've just gone from psychology to sociology, I apologize, how institutions show up in the world of maybe we could say that all institutions have one of those three goals as well. I want to succeed, I want to survive, or I want to soothe. I think the church is ultimately called to maybe be a balance of those three things. Uh, there's a really nice shepherd metaphor if you look at the middle of those. But maybe we could start a little easier than that and just say that most churches live on the currency of success. How big are we by modern standards? How big are we? How many people are attending? What's our giving like, our revenue, our budget? That's success language. Um, when, when that doesn't go well, we turn into survival. How are we going to make it? Um, and at its worst, that can look, into, look like defensiveness um, and really toxic apologetics at times. But what's the soothing part of the church? And how do we actually put that first and foremost that looks like this is a safe place for you, a place where you can belong, where you can find community, a place where you can find your a, a free place to express your authentic self. And if I was to bring this back around to the church in place, we can start looking at the way that minority majority churches have actually been doing this for a long time. The black church, for example, has been a safe, soothing haven, not concerned with its success for the, in the majority of metropolitan city centers across the U.S. It, it's not trying to be big. It's trying to be a safe place, a place where people don't have to code switch, a, people where, a place where people don't have to come in and be somebody else the way that a person of color has to be in a white church. It's safety. It's uh, soothing. It's belonging. It's an, an authentic expression of self that doesn't look like the world. And so I think there are solutions out there. It takes a lot of humility to say that we don't need to be successful because that is what the, the, the currency the church is built on in modernity. We want to be big. We want to be relevant. Yeah. Uh, a lot of church leaders would say that they're successful if they are relevant yeah. to people. And that's, it's nice words, but maybe we would say that uh, success should come down in priority. Just meet the needs of a few people in a community, f uh, foster, facilitate their belonging and serve them along the way. I think that's a really, uh, it's something that I've been meditating on for a long time. I'm curious what other things, uh, think about it here as well. But coming back to the idea of consumerism, success culture, how much has the top of uh, the church been wrapped up in that and how much does it impact the place that we are then located in one city, one neighborhood to the next? Yeah. Yeah. I know we're running out of time, David, but uh, Daniel, I love the, the distinction between soothing and success and survival. And then the, the, the thing that I would think about is as a church, you know, who's um, soothing are we concerned with? Are we concerned with our own? Mm -hmm. Or for those who are the unsoothed, you know, those yeah. who are oppressed, those who are marginalized, because um, I get, I guess that's where it comes down to me. You know, I believe God has placed churches in our society and in specific places for the thriving of the people in those places that 
are currently not soothed, are currently looking for relation, are currently, you know, not thriving. And then that opens up the whole Pandora's box of, of, of uh, engagement modalities or strategies. You know, it, it goes so much further beyond what's the sermon I'm going to preach this Sunday to how can I help our neighborhood um uh, how can I help underemployment in our neighborhood? Because that's yeah. such a huge issue. Or, you know, there's drug addiction in our neighborhood. It's such a huge issue. How can how can we deal with that? That opens up so many more things um, than what uh, a traditional, you know, me first consumer mentality would open up. Yeah. Well, I think the danger to that is that we're, we're starting to have neighborhoods that are so segregated by class and, 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 and race that when we say, oh, we need to be rooted in place, those places may not have enough tension to do the kinds of things you're asking of it, Dave. So mm. it almost like we, we've, we've got to change our sense of proximity to, to really see those injustices and, and inequities and then make sure we're doing those things um, as well. I keep, well, uh, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I just keep thinking there's been a couple times when people have, you know, been talking about different ideas and I keep thinking about the neighborhood that I first moved into when I um, moved to Atlanta, where my first apartment was. Um, and it was right down the road from an Orthodox Jewish synagogue, um, and a school as well. And so in that community, people had decided to move close enough to the synagogue so that they could walk, um, to the temple on uh, the Sabbath because of how they imagined themselves in relation to work and life and creating a community. And really there's like a, um, it's a whole other rabbit trail that we won't go down, but there's, there's a lot of ways that they design and imagine their community around the life of um, the synagogue, the life of the community that lives there and they live and work and play and do things together, um, especially on Sabbath. And so I don't know. I just keep thinking about what does it mean to, if we're translating this to um, the Christian church, of, I think there's an element of the way that these people are imagining themselves, the way they use their theological imagination to re relate to themselves, to relate to the people in their community, to relate to God, to relate to the physical environment. I think there's something for us to learn there of, um, you know, I'm not saying every congregation, every religion denomination has to replicate the same model of community, but I think it speaks to this intention and this choice to say, no, I'm going to live here because I think that this matters on a deep theological, like, level that that gets into my soul and the heart of like what I believe about who I'm supposed to be and who my community is supposed to be in the world. And I just, I don't know, I think there's a lot there that it, the way that we might imagine ourselves is with this choice consumerist, um, dare I say, capitalist mentality um, to just continue to choose things based off of what might feel more comfortable for me in the moment um, when I might just have to move outside my comfort zone to get what might be the root of what's really good. And David, when you speak with Tim Sorens, um, that's what he's all about. You know, parish collective, that's the counterculturalism. I think that we've, we've been skirting around here is, are we willing to break out of our culture, which um, really doesn't support what you, that vision you just shared, Becca, it, it really supports more of a 
commuter consumeristic yeah. um, mentality where, you know, we drive to our nice quiet homes and then we drive to go shopping and then we drive to go work out and then we drive our kids to school um, and then we come back, you know, and it's all separated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and when I hear you say, refer to like Sabbath and, and Jewish ways of sort of limiting, it is it is acknowledging our limits. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't think uh, that's very anti-American, right? We want more choices. We want uh, no limits. Um, so the idea of, of conspiring to do otherwise is, is really difficult. That's why I think churches don't want to be rooted in place because it could limit their market of who they can reach and how many people they can reach and how sustainable their churches will be. It's very hard to imagine that. Could I sustain myself or my church just being rooted in a neighborhood? Yeah. But if you're in Daniel Copeland's neighborhood, yes, yes, you could. (laughs) Yes. Well, thank you so much for a wonderful conversation on church and neighborhood. Uh, It's wonderful uh, to work with you on this survey. And thank you so much for getting us data that gives us some insight into it. And there, we still may be asking more questions that require more research and data, but uh, it's nice to humanize that and still ask good questions about questioning our psychology, sociology, and our very own preferences. Um, so thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, yeah, thanks so much. One of the best ways that we can offer to see what it looks like to partner well with the neighborhood is for you to come here for a visit. We love hosting guests in historic South Atlanta. In the spring and the fall, we host a two-day immersive event called Open House. So please come, meet our team, see the work, walk our neighborhood. To register for this, go to fcsministries.org slash openhouse. Place Matters is produced by Focused Community Strategies, whose mission it is to partner with under-resourced neighborhoods to provide innovative and holistic development that produces flourishing communities and God's shalom. Place Matters is hosted by FCS's training and consulting team. If you'd like to inquire about our training and consulting services, please reach out to us via our website or find us on LinkedIn and social media. This information can be found in the show notes. If you'd like to watch these episodes, the video can be found on our YouTube channel. And if you like these episodes, please share them on social media. Your support means a lot to us. The show was edited by Tim Rhodes with music by Eric North. Special thanks to David Park, Becca Klein, and Rose Silva at FCS for their work in organizing and recording these sessions. We would like to say thanks to our partner, Lily Endowment, Inc., whose Thriving Congregations grant has made this podcast possible. Mm-hmm.